So last week, ask you guys, um, sort of rhetorically, how many of you have New Year's resolutions? And, you know, I told you I wasn't going to ask you to raise your hands because it was demoralizing to me to see how many people chose not to make New Year's resolutions. And we went to lunch last week, Pastor Dan and Lori and, and Dan's son, Brady, and daughter-in-law, Michaela. And we were talking about it a little bit at lunch. And why wouldn't somebody make a New Year's resolution? Well, we had all kinds of spirited conversation there. Um, you know, one person said, well, it's demoralizing when you, when you make a resolution and you know you're going to break it. And so, you know, why set a goal if you know you're not going to keep the goal? Somebody said, well, I set goals all the time. I have goals for myself all year long. Why would I want to make goals just around the new year so that, you know, I, I mean, if I'm doing it in January and February and March, what's the big deal about the 31st? Everyone has a different philosophy or perspective. Me, however, one of my greatest fears is staying the same every year, not growing. Because I believe that really there's no way to stay the same, that if you're not growing, you're regressing, you're sliding, you're drifting. And so for me, I take the end of the year and the beginning of the new year to make goals, to set uh, some goals that will take me through the next 12 months. I do an evaluation of the previous 12 months. And then last week I gave you four questions or really three questions and then one summary sort of, sort of a statement at the top that helped us get an idea of how we're doing. Right? Because I mean, we're all trying to grow. We're trying to become like Jesus. We're trying to live a life that Jesus would be proud of. We're trying to invest in the people around us, to leave a legacy behind us when we are gone. And we know the only life really worth living is the life that's given away. That's how we measure the value of a life, by how much of it is given away. And so as we looked at these four things, I decided today I was going to start with these four things to set the tone because in my mind, this is a gauge or a measure of success. Are we getting it right? Is God doing something in our lives? Are we allowing the Holy Spirit to transform us? These are four great indicators. And for me, as I look at you, you look at me, we look at the people who are closest to us. These are the kinds of things that I like to see happen in my life, in your life, in our church's life the people who are closest to me and to joy. And so I want to review very briefly reading these things to you. And I want to ask you the question, how are you doing? Number one, am I gradually absorbing a theology or a worldview of grace? Or is my theology or worldview becoming less gracious? Is the statement, I'm a person of grace, my friends, my wife, my husband, my kids, my coworkers, they would say, yeah, Rick, he's gracious. Don't use the word Rick, use your own name there and ask yourself that question. Are you becoming more like Jesus? Number one, is my heart becoming softer or Am I becoming harder? Last year at this time, compared to this year at this time, is my heart softer toward the people around me, toward the world around me? Is it softer toward those who don't meet whatever standard that I may have previously set at some point in my life? Am I for people or am I against people? Do I see people around me as on my way or in my way? Is my heart becoming softer? Number two, am I becoming more forgiving more quickly? Or am I still holding on to those grudges of the past? Am I still choosing bitterness and resentment? 
Am I taking offense to things too quickly? Am I prickly like a porcupine? That's an interesting question. But I think it's one worth asking. Am I becoming more forgiving more quickly? And then finally, am I becoming less judgmental and less proud? Am I becoming less judgmental and less proud, more selfless, more humble? Or am I becoming more judgmental and more arrogant? Dug in in my position and conviction that I'm right and everyone else is wrong. Well, just some questions to get us started to prime the pump. And, and I love thinking about these things because these are the deep things of life. This is letting us know if all of the Bible study that we do together, all of the study of the New Testament and referring back to the Old Testament, if it's working, if God's doing a work by allowing us not just to be hearers of the word, but by being doers, if the message is coming in through our ears, down to our heart and out through our hands, is it working? I asked recently a friend, and I love asking advice. I've asked these questions from many of you who I respect, many of my friends. People who are a little older than me, sometimes close in age, sometimes quite a bit older, that if you were to look back over your life and you were able to go back and give advice to somebody, your kids, if they would listen, your grandkids, younger people, people who are making their decisions, charting their course, what is it that you would tell them? What's the one thing that you think would make somebody successful in life? Now, the people who I ask these questions to aren't people who don't seem like that they have softer hearts and less judgmental spirits and they're less approachable and, and they're judgmental. And these are people who seem like they're getting it. But there's this weird sort of a relationship, sometimes in Christianity that I don't quite understand. I mean, ideally, theoretically, the longer a person's a Christian, and some of us have been Christians for a long time in here, some maybe not quite so long, maybe some in here have not yet decided whether you're going to give yourself to Jesus and you're considering it. But the longer a person is saved, a Christian, the longer a person has a commitment to Jesus, the more these things should describe them. But in some cases, the longer a person says that they're a believer, the less these things describe them. And one of my greatest questions and quandaries in life is that how can somebody who has supposedly walked with God for so many years be so, well, not, it's inconsistent. But there are those who've done it right, whose life you look at and you say, yep, there's something there that I want to see in my life. And you ask him questions, and I've asked him that question. I asked this friend of mine this question, and his answer impacted me. Because this is a guy who had everything that anybody would ever want. And I'm going to tell you what his answer was, but I'm not going to tell you until the end of the time that we're meeting together this morning. But before that, I want to talk to you about another man in Scripture who's given advice. One of the one things that he would want a younger man to know. A younger person. Something he thought was so important, a principle that he wanted to pass on that not only did he want this person to know, but he wanted this person to tell his church and for that church to tell everyone else who would listen. And even hundreds and thousands of years later, a couple thousand years later, we're still talking about these principles. 
The man I'm talking about is the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul, as you and I have spent some time talking about Paul, simply spent his life writing the things that he felt were important that God, the Holy Spirit, gave him to help us understand how to live like Jesus. The Apostle Paul pointed at Jesus and said, these are the things that it's going to take to live this way. All I can do is point and I hope you look. Well, the Apostle Paul took a couple missionary journeys. He took several, actually, and we know of a few in Scripture, and we talked about one of them last week, the second missionary journey, and on this particular missionary journey, and as I mentioned last week, the missionary journey itself, I mean, it sounds a little mystical. It was just a guy taking a trip who was planting churches, and he took a trip, several trips, to plant churches because there were groups of people who didn't know Jesus, groups of places or many places that didn't have churches. And so he spent his life planting churches. He spent his life going to different places and leaving behind the gospel. Now, in his second missionary journey, he met a guy named Timothy. He met a man named Timothy in a town called Lystra. And the apostle Paul in his second missionary journey had broken up a relationship or broken off a relationship with one of his best friends named Barnabas. Now the apostle Paul, as he traveled, was an older man by this time. A man who, if you looked at his life, you would say there's a secret to strength here. There's something he knows that not everyone else knows. He's the kind of person you would want to give you the one thing that's important, secrets to, to right living. And as we look at the Apostle Paul's life, we see that, that as he was an older man, he had some physical struggles. For one, we know he couldn't see very well. Another is that he had some, some physical deformities, probably from being beaten and all the things that he'd been through. He needed a traveling companion, needed somebody to help him just navigate the basic, essential everyday life. But he also needed somebody to pass knowledge on to, somebody to pray for, somebody to connect with. And so he had an absence of that partnership. And by the way, when Paul and Barnabas split their friendship and partnership up, it provides a model for Christian conflict that many of us could really apply to our own lives. But he decided to begin to travel with Timothy. And he poured his life into Timothy, a younger man who he'd seen some promise in. Now, he didn't see Timothy, this up-and-coming pastor, as being a person filled with promise because Timothy was a great speaker or that he was a great leader or he had all the charisma in the world. What he saw, what the apostle Paul saw in Timothy was that Timothy was a person trying to do these kinds of things, trying to apply these principles to his life. A person who was living a way that the world didn't understand to show the world there was a different way to live. So Paul began to travel with Timothy. Eventually he left him in Ephesus to pastor the church there. And later in Paul's life, he wrote what we call the pastoral epistles, just three letters that we have recorded, the last things that, that we know for sure, the last communications that he wrote. He may have written several letters to Timothy, but there are only two of them that made it in scripture. And in 1 Timothy, the apostle Paul at the very end of the book gives Timothy this one important thing. He talks to him about success in life. He talks to him about winning. And man, I promise you, Timothy, the church in Ephesus, they were leaning forward and listening up. As I know you will, as I have been, as I've studied this. Now, before we dive into this, the apostle Paul in scripture often talks about rich people and poor people. And sometimes we think the rich people are vilified or we should vilify them because rich is bad and money is bad and we get all up on this big soapbox and that's just not biblical at all. 
when we talk about money, it's our relationship to money. And when the New Testament uses the word money, we can substitute the word money and stuff, right? Because money buys stuff. And when the Bible says rich, I don't want you to think about the person in your life who has the most money, the person who you can think of that's the richest. I want you to think in a different way. Not too long ago, actually this last week, Joy and I were watching TV. And as we were watching TV, it was in the evening, we were sitting upstairs in front of our upstairs TV. And we have, by the way, a downstairs TV and we have a TV in our bedroom and God forbid there's even one in our garage, four TVs. And as we were sitting there, I had to go to the bathroom, my own fault. I try to drink a gallon of water a day. I had to go, that's what happens. And I didn't want to go because immediately I thought, I have to get up off my, my recliner and I have to walk all the way down to the end of my house. I have to go into my bedroom and I have to go to the bathroom and I'm gonna miss out what's going on. Now, why, why, why I didn't think to pause the TV, I don't know. But as I was getting up to go all the way down to the bathroom, this inconvenient thing, I realized I didn't have to actually go all the way down to my bedroom and in there to go. All I had to do was walk across the little hallway in between my two extra rooms in my house and I could go right there. And I could even, if the door was open, still see the tip, which I you know, don't recommend. And I had this weird thought I thought, you know what, I'm rich compared to the way that a lot of the world lives. And as I'm standing there, I'm thinking, if I didn't want to use this bathroom, I could go downstairs into my basement and I have another bathroom. And do you know how many places in our country and all across our world where people don't have any bathrooms at all? When I had decided to drive to church today, I had to choose between one of two vehicles, both that would have started. When I put the key in, turn the ignition. I didn't have to walk. Rich is something that we have to be very careful how we define. Well, let me see if I can help a little more. How many of you go into Target with a list of one thing and walk out with just one thing? I know a lot of you guys are like, ah, my wife goes to Target. How about Home Depot or Lowe's, gentlemen? One thing. No. Why? Because we have extra. How many times do you have an Amazon.com delivery on your porch and you don't even know what's in it till you open the box? We have more than what we need. Most of us, rich, these principles we're talking about apply to us. We may not have millions stacked up in the bank, but the principles that the Apostle Paul is passing to Timothy, who's passing to us, are things you and I need to apply if we want to win in life. Here we go. 1 Timothy chapter 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Boom. If you say, Rick, what's the secret to life? And I was to say to you, godliness plus contentment is great gain. I could drop the mic, I could go on to the restaurant, go home and have done my job, but I'm not gonna do that. For we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. 
But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now the apostle Paul, as he's writing this, has learned in his life to streamline. He's a minimalist at this time in his life. He's traveling from place to place by ship and in all sorts of inconvenient kind of ways. He's not taking a trailer with him or a cargo container. He's living out of a backpack at this point in his life. And the people who are with him understand that he's living out of a backpack and so are they. That they're not gonna have a lot of earthly possessions. Now the apostle Paul is a person who had everything life has to offer from a material perspective before he became a believer, a Christian. He had more money than he could spend, more power, more prestige, more stuff. He knew what he was talking about because he had all the stuff in the world, but he lacked godliness and he lacked contentment. So he writes, godliness plus contentment is great gain. And, and then he applies it and he says, you know, my friends and I, we're really doing pretty well here with just the food that we need and the clothing that we have. But I understand you may have a family. Paul at this point didn't. I understand you may have more responsibilities. So take this in scale. Understand what I'm talking about. Be responsible. But don't let stuff, money, the scale and score of the world. Don't let it control you or you're gonna lose. Godliness and contentment is great gain. Let's look at this together. Let's look at godliness first. Godliness is something that, that when, we, when we look at, it seems really big, it seems impossible. It seems like it's an unattainable kind of a word. When Paul says godliness, I mean, what does it literally mean? It means like God. I'm like, I can't be like God, but God came, or he showed us what he was like through Jesus, who also was God, but came to live life as a man here for 33 years, 100% God and 100% man. And he lived this life that made us able to understand the kinds of things that God cares about. His value system, his economy. I have a good friend who I had a conversation with a few weeks ago and we were talking about life. And this is the way he started his conversation off. He said, I'm a Christian, but I'm not a very good one. And that always gives me a chuckle. And when you ask a, well, when we begin a conversation like that, I wanna ask you some questions, some follow-up questions, because it fascinates me. And I said, well, what's a good Christian? Because by his definition, I probably am not a very good Christian either. And as we begin to talk, he began to talk about all the stuff that he thought he should be doing well, I should really be doing some more of this and I ought to be doing this and I need to go start doing this, but I really need to stop this and I need to cut this out. And if I really would, and it was all about this external kinds of, and I'm like, listen, if you're a Christian, what that means is that you care about the things that Jesus cares about and you've decided to give your life to these things. These principles, it's like, well, what does Jesus care about? Oh my goodness, I'm glad you asked other people, compassion, inclusion, hope, a peacemaker, somebody who looks at every single person in their lives 
as on their way, not in their way, and offers the opportunity to live a different way. Who says, if you confess sin and leave that life behind that you know has led you out into the woods and left you for dead, if you confess that sin, you believe who I am, you tell me you want to live this way, I'll lead you to a life you've never imagined. Godliness, accepting the principles of Jesus and saying, yes, this is how I want to live my life. He says, godliness plus contentment is great gain. Now, this word contentment scares me to death. And the reason that it scares me is because contentment sounds a lot like complacency. And complacency is one of my greatest fears. Complacency, treading water, being the same, being where I am next year, last year, and the year after, never improving, never growing, getting to the end of my life and looking back and, and living with regret. Contentment, mentally or emotionally satisfied with the things as they are, it means self-sufficiency, but it doesn't mean complacency. It was used by the cynics and the Stoics to speak of self-mastery, the person who was not moved by circumstance, distraction, or trouble. The person who is content does not have the ability to control their environment, and they've realized that, but it's a person who is able to react to their environment correctly. To realize that there are going to be all kinds of circumstances in life that may be difficult. All kinds of seasons in life where we may have a lot or we may have a little. That blessings come and blessings go. A person who stops trying to control the blessings and the gifts, but decides to worship the giver, our God. I'm okay. I'm content. I want to be fine with whatever life brings. To rise above and have mastery over the economy and the, the way that the world around us keeps score. And he says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Well, let's keep looking. Great gain, literally the word great means mega, which is exactly the way it sounds. It has nothing to do with how much we have but it's related to how much we want. Is that too nuanced to just drop on you there? Again, I'm not asking you really to agree or disagree. I'm trying to communicate what the Bible teaches and this advice that comes through the pen of a wise Christian man given to him through the inspiration of God himself. I wanna make sure I'm clear this is what the Bible says. We have to decide whether we're going to take it or leave it, whether we're going to apply it or, or not apply it. But gain doesn't have much to do with how much we have. It has to do with how much we want. And if we're content with what God gives us, we're rich. In the Proverbs, two things I ask you, Lord, don't refuse these things to me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty or riches. That's a weird thing to ask God, isn't it? God, don't make me broke and don't let me win the lotto. Because if I win the lotto, I'm not going to need you anymore, God. Well, I mean, I'm going to say I do, but I'm not really going to need you. Don't make me rich beyond what I, can, what I can handle. But don't make me so broke I'm tempted to steal. Because if I do that, then I'm going to bring shame to the gospel. Give me what I need. Give me what you want me to have. Because after all, you're God and I'm not. Wow. What a powerful, powerful proverb. All right, let's keep moving. It just gets better. 
For the love of money is the root or a root of all kinds of evil. Some people pursuing money or stuff have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, again, I want to remind you, the Bible teaches us at least two things about money and stuff. First of all, that it's not a sin to have money or to have stuff. The Bible teaches us in Proverbs, again, I walk in the way of righteousness along the path of justice, bestowing a rich inheritance on those who love me and I make their treasuries full. It's not wrong to have it. It's wrong to worship it. It's wrong to pursue it. It's wrong to make it first. It's wrong for it to be the goal of your life. Number two, it's God who gives us the ability to get money or to make money and to get stuff. This is where I think you and I get it wrong so many times. We think we have the ability, we have the work ethic, we have the drive, we've succeeded, we're doing this our way. Yes, of course, God, I'll give you a little of what it is that I have. And the Bible tells us in Deuteronomy that remember the Lord your God, for it's he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Even those from the most dire and bleak circumstances who've reached any measure of comfort or success have had opportunities, relationships, situations, circumstances that they didn't create, you didn't create, I didn't create, God created. The intellect you have, the personality, those things that you think make you successful, who gave them to you? God did. And we have to remember that it's not wrong to have something. It's wrong to worship what we have. And that after all, God gave us this ability. So what am I gonna do with this ability? For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. What are you willing to do for it? So I'm not gonna do anything for money that's wrong. Well, we do a lot of things for things we love, don't we? I love my wife. 32 years of marriage on December 30th, 32 years. And um, 33 years ago, when we were dating, during the summers, she lived in Mountain Home, Arkansas, and I lived in Memphis. And they were several hundred miles apart. And it took about a half a day to drive, depending on how fast you drove. And you may not think you do crazy things for love, but you do. There were times, more than one time, when I drove in the morning all the way to Mountain Home, Arkansas, to spend two or three hours with Joy, got in the car and drove all the way back home so that I could get up and go to work the next day. I mean, eight, nine hours in the car to spend two or three hours. But to me, it was worth it every second. We do things that don't make sense for people we love. But sometimes we can do things that don't make sense for stuff and money if we love it. And the Apostle Paul is telling us that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Who are you willing to hurt for it? Well, I don't hurt anybody for it. I think we may. I think many times we rationalize and justify the need to achieve, the need to advance, the need to be promoted, the need to accumulate. 
and we say something like, well, I just want to make sure that I'm taken care of, or men often say this, I want to make sure my family's taken care of, and if I die, everything's okay, and we justify the love affair we have with achievement, with the external scorecard, with the accumulation of stuff. We justify it, name it something different, something virtuous sounding. But the people closest to us, they know we're lying. And what happens is you grow old without any quality of relationship because the people who know us know we've chosen everything else except them. And they sit around waiting for us to die because as long as we're alive, they have neither our stuff nor us and we're no good to anybody. The love of money is the root of many kinds of evil. Who or what gets prioritized behind it? We can justify and rationalize, and my favorite thing to do when I wanna make a dumb decision is to consult other people who I know have made the same dumb decisions I have. I'm telling you what, a fellow fool will pat you on the back on your road to destruction. but it's so easy to gather those kinds of voices and influences into our life. I don't know, this is heavy stuff, but I want you to track with me. This is the Apostle Paul saying, boom, here it is. You wanna know something? Godliness plus contentment is great gain. Let's land this plane. We'll try to do it quickly, but I think it's profound. But you, man of God, now he's writing to a man, to Timothy, so you ladies don't get mad, right? If he was writing to you, he would say, woman of God or lady of, I don't know what he would say, but he would include you, right? He would address you. He's writing to a man, to Timothy, flee from this. You want to do an interesting study, look through the New Testament at the times that were instructed to flee from something. Even the Old Testament, very interesting. I did that this week. Pursue righteousness, which means set the course of your life in a way that you're going to attain it. Pursue righteousness. We already talked about that, right? Godliness, faith, love, Endurance, don't quit and don't give up. And look at this right here at the end, gentleness. Could he be referring to a soft heart, a humble spirit, a forgiving nature, a gracious worldview? Perhaps. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain to put their hope in God. I want you to pay particular attention to this last statement. Who richly provides us with everything. A lot of people don't think this next part's in the Bible at all. What does it say? For our enjoyment. Let me explain it this way. If you wanna really know what's going to make you happy in life, if you wanna be filled with joy, the joy that comes from winning from God's perspective. Be willing to live this way. Wow. Now, at this point in time, if you are like me and like many close to me who I share this message with before I try it out on you guys, you may be filled with a little bit of regret because many times we get these things wrong. Regret can paralyze you 
tempt you to run in the opposite direction or regret can be a powerful motivator. Regret can become resolve, resolve to live a different way. That's where I hope we're heading. Do I cut my family time because of this? Do I skip church and important spiritual activities because of it? Do I avoid serving because of it? Do I avoid giving to fund it? Do I allow it to keep from making me a positive influence in this world? The interesting relationship that God teaches through scripture about stuff and money is though no matter how much we have, we ought to be giving and investing a little more than we're comfortable with. Um, And that doesn't go just for money. It goes for our time. It goes for our thoughts. I mean, it's sort of a holistic, inclusive kind of an approach. But the life of faith is a life that's lived where we feel like it's one step outside what we can control. The Apostle Paul says, step out. Don't allow it to keep us from making a positive difference in the world around us. You ever go to a funeral? I talk about these from time to time. You have, I have. What do they talk about in people's lives? What do you want someone to say about you? Oh, do you know how much stuff they had? No. Do you know how much of their life they gave away? The measure of a life, the quality of a life, is measured by how much of it we give away. How much of our lives we give away. Command them to do good. This word command means to tell the people who you're teaching, to implore them, to beg them, to consider these things, to allow regret to become resolve. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. And this way, you'll store up real treasure for yourself as a firm foundation for heaven to come so that we may take hold of the life that's truly life, the life full of enjoyment, we can win. Godliness plus contentment is a mega win. My friend who I asked this question to, who has everything that most people work toward, more money than he can spend, more houses than he can live in, more vehicles than he can drive, more titles than most people need. I said, what is it that you could pass down to your kids if they would listen? To your younger self, if you were able to go back in time, to your grandkids as soon as they get old enough to comprehend, to a young man who may be teachable, to a friend who's looking at their lives. And he said, oh, it's easy. He said, it's not worth it. 
What do you mean? What's it? He said, it. He said, everything I grew up being told I have to have. All of the goals that I set in my life, I got everything and gained nothing. And the people who I should have been investing in and loving paid the price. He said, I would tell them it's not worth it. So I said, well, what are you doing now, right? Everybody's got a past. He said, I'm living the rest of my life to make up for it. And that's all we can do, right? We can live a different way. So that's my prayer. It's the Apostle Paul's instruction and advice to Timothy, who was a pastor who gave his message to this church that he was pastoring in Ephesus. It was so important it became part of our scripture so that you and I, many, many, many years later, can be applying these things to our life. And friends, you, through God's help, can do it. We're going to do it together. Father, thank you so much for my friends who are here.